0: I was working at a gas station in the summer of 2003. Our record came out in the summer of 2004. The Silence of black and white, and we were headline. We were one of the headliners of Warped Tour 2005. Mm-hmm. So, right. gas station, Silverstein tour, Warped Tour main stage, and then the following year, headlining theaters, Fallout Boy tour. Right. Arenas. Right. Basically, we went yeah, from gas go. station to arenas in less than three years. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Labeled. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today's episode is with J.T. Woodruff, who is one of the most intentional and efficient leaders and operators in the history of this scene. His band, Hawthorne Heights, has had absolutely huge ups and downs. Ups like their first two records, Going Gold, and creating one of the most iconic emo songs ever, Ohio is for Lovers, which is at almost 100 million Spotify plays right now and downs including a lengthy and costly lawsuit with their label victory records as well as the death of a best friend and bandmate casey calvert in 2007. hawthorne heights has handled their career incredibly well racking up over 20 years of successful continuous activity and continuing to innovate adapt and grow as people and as a band JT is one of the most, if not the most principled person I know, and his values and principles have guided him well across the spectrum from the smallest details of being punk and DIY to the large scale business moves like creating the Is for Lovers Festival, which is becoming wildly successful. JT is a great personal friend of mine and one of my favorite people to spend time with, and I'm glad to be able to share this conversation with you. And don't forget to find and join the labeled Facebook group. Okay, let's do it. How do you feel about the fact that um, given like the way everybody's to get dressed up for Zoom meetings, there's a little bit of a paradox here for me is that we're in the line of work where it both does matter how you look and doesn't matter how you look. So you get on a Zoom meeting and you don't have to be some crazy presentable rock star. But even if you have a corporate job, you have to at least be wearing like whatever. But band dudes have this paradox of can look bad on purpose. (laughs) I actually
0: prefer that. I think that uh, a long, long time ago, we all absolutely ran towards the light of being tattooed freaks. Um, I think that you remember a a time long ago, because you're from kind of a small town like I am, that one singular visible tattoo meant you either worshipped the devil, were on drugs, or on a on a path to both mm-hmm. self-destruction mm-hmm. and uh you know physical destruction or the destruction of all morals and values gone. Mm-hmm. One tattoo that said, Mom, you're over. It's out.
1: And so you embrace the the outcast part of that as the fundamental part.
0: Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that being able to be a a rational, professional in an irrational, unprofessional field is the best feeling in the world.
1: Okay, okay. Let's it pro- from that then. Yes. we Say, say we, that again. Articulate that again. I like it.
0: Yes. Being able to be a professional, rational person in an otherwise unprofessional, irrational field is mm-hmm. quote-unquote living the dream
1: because we yeah, have skirt
0: we have we have figured it out everybody's always thought that we were all losers that we're never going to go anywhere uh-huh. at some point uh and we were able to
1: all carve out 20 years so far there you go yeah there you go and so you so you that is a very affirmative of the path that you've been on and everything and so just because i know you so well and have such a, a parallel track um i feel like i have a really good perspective on your whole career and journey so i w- there's a whole bunch we i want to do in this conversation but i'll just brace you we're just since i know you since we have a lot of shared stuff we're just going i'm going to really take you deep this this time so i want to jump right into stuff and really talk about how everything works for somebody like you um and yeah, there's a bunch to do here for the whole Hawthorne Heights story, who you are as a person, and what all's going on. So, with your permission, I want to do a, a deep combo today. I love it. We're Absolutely. get the values, all this stuff. So, I mean, this is, this will be deeper than the general press about stuff, because I just think there's a lot to mine from your perspective. So, um, because it's been so long and I uh, let's just let's jump in story-wise can you just remember when we met and help set the scene of that and then I want to jump all around at a bunch of important stuff
0: absolutely so first of all my my brain for lack of a better term is a chaos-filled sponge i remember everything it creates a lot of arguments but also creates a lot of solutions sometimes because I'm a hard person to prove wrong because I can remember everything about the moment that it happened. Okay. You, the very first time that we ever met was the first time I set foot in the state of California at Orange in Orangevale at the boardwalk. Very first time. I remember the very first time that I ever walked up to anybody in your band, which at this point was Devin, introduced myself, I had only heard the album, and that you guys were from Seattle. And in that moment, I either thought I was being punked because he had an extremely thick accent, Uh or that he was a friend of the band that worked for the band or anything like that. Because, you know, at that point, the internet wasn't as prevalent. There was no, like, real social media. So I didn't see you guys all over the internet talking all the Mm. time. You know, totally different scenario back then. You could be a little bit more of a stranger. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, So, yeah. So, at that moment, I immediately got the personality. I could tone down what I had turned into a little bit more of an East Coast accent from a West Virginia accent. I could soften the barriers (laughs) that I have already created. And we became instant summer camp friends from moment one. So Mm -hmm. I absolutely remember that. And, uh, you know, I think that we we just all came from kind of similar backgrounds. You guys leaving the comfort yet shackles of a small town to try and carve out a music scene and me leaving West Virginia to get out of there to try to, you know, hit the gold rush of what being a musician would be would never happen in such a small market. Um, mm-hmm. So I just think we automatically got along because we were kindred spirits from day one, you know, always ready to grind.
1: The, the way that I remember it is just that they're like, oh, who's this Hawthorne band coming? Cause we're on tour with Silverstein, Alexis on fire, Emery. And then, um, so you joined the tour in the in the middle of it, and Orange Orangevale there, and I just remember it's like, oh, there's a new band. They're a Victory band, so they, you know, they we didn't get signed to Victory, we got signed to Tooth and Nail, and they got signed to Victory. But it could have gone the other way. Who knows? I mean, in, or whatever. It was that kind of thing. And they're going to be the opener, and we were just establishing connection with Silverstein and Alexis on Fire. And Alexis on Fire was really cool and and doing really well, but hadn't gotten crazy big yeah and silverstein was already dialed in as a headliner and like you got paul kohler there and they're running their thing like a business so it's like okay these are the people who are real doing real stuff stably as well where they're running their own business you can feel that and then you guys joined that tour as an unheard of band that had just signed a victory and you're getting fifty dollars a night and it's like okay here comes some other new band and um the first thing that happens is somebody comes up to me and say hey, i think they've got a nintendo you know in their van and one of their guys is like trying to collect all the nintendo games so i said okay well this ought to work out pretty good this ought to be this ought to be easy to integrate with these guys
0: absolutely and that person was me yeah. um <laughs> and that person is still me uh i wouldn't say I, i'm kind of an anti-collector now but i am only interested in memories From 1985 to 1988 in my head, that's that's the only movies that I want to watch. That's the only video games I want to watch. So I have not done any sort of upgrade to my hard drive in my brain since that time period Mm -hmm. involving entertainment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we'll start there. But yes, uh, so fifty dollars a night. I believe we replaced the hire,
1: the hire, Um, that's
0: right. Yes, the hire who I've never met to this day so we became the hire that day i guess Mm -hmm. um and it was uh very interesting and very groundbreaking for us to see the way that silverstein and paul were already operating because you know like yeah 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 yeah. after step one like night one you know we're like looking for a place to stay and paul comes up to me immediately it's like hey you guys can here this is the hotel we're staying at just stay at this hotel uh just stay at a hotel every night trust me it's unsustainable i know you guys want to save money but trust me for your mental health moving forward if you're going to do this the right way you're going to want to be staying in hotels and getting proper sleep because you'll never last and i've taken that that little piece of advice it seems tiny but that little piece of advice um And I've always thought that way. And he was 100% correct. You know, everybody's looking to save nickels and dimes at that point. But you also need to invest mentally and invest in in physicality and everything to be able to not just burn out in a tour, you know, whether Mm. it be vocally, mentally, anything like that. So they were the first person, you know, to kind of take us under their wings for just that microsecond and be like, hey, Trust me, if you, if you don't know what you're doing out here, we'll help you get the hotels. You we'll, you know you can pay us for them or you know whatever you guys want to do. Uh, but trust me, get hotels. Don't be staying with people. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going to be better off. The,
1: so the 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 landscape then. I want to try and just the thing that's interesting about all that is that band particularly and you guys and some other bands. There's this kind of work ethic, a real do-it-yourself thing that is present that's different from just general musician rock starry type personality is this and when you see people that are really you know doing their thing and taking it seriously um and operating well it feels like um, a totally different thing than that classical way you think of rock bands and the immaturity of of some of all that and so there's like it's hard to explain because everybody's different places on that spectrum but it also seems to come even further from it like it seems related to this almost ethical code of how things should just be done by good people doing them well. And I'm curious where that deeper sense of values, you know, how that, how do you have that and where does that come from even earlier on? Cause it's maybe it, then there's like straight edge and Christianity. There's these other value systems that kind of create these certain types of how, you know, even bands operate and you, and you are one of those. Um, So where does the, what is the whole thing? If we can just jump into like who JT is, what do you really believe even on the metaphysical level and about music and about how one should oper- operate in the world that that gives rise to this mentality that you have?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know this is, these are all great questions that I haven't really touched on a whole lot uh in interviews because it's always been, you know surface level stuff, you know, how did you come up with the name Hawthorne Heights and stuff like that and I wish we had better stories for that, even, but me as a human being, I can talk to you. You're very
1: strong on an ethical moral code that seems built in or you got from somewhere that's very deep for you. What it helped me get all the way to what that is fundamentally.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, my family in general uh, has zero religious background, Um, no love for or hate for, just a very base level belief system of there's probably something out there, but no uh, positive affirmation or negative affirmation. You know what I mean? Like a a truly zero, a truly neutral background religiously. Yes. Uh, You know, I never heard my family talking about it growing up, anything like that for the positive or the negative. So like truly neutral, Uh, I was never pushed one way or another Uh, And anything, we just didn't go to church or didn't read the Bible or didn't talk about it in any way. Um, And that that really goes to my extended family and everything like that. You know, so it's probably coming from my my mother's background, because that's who I hung out with and knew the most. Um, But, yeah, so my father. My parents split up when I was in sixth grade, which is a very pivotal moment for me. You know, you're just starting to kind of figure out who you are and everything. And we moved from a little tiny uh, military area called Fort Benning, Georgia, which is um, Columbus, Georgia, right across from Alabama in that in that area. So that's kind of where my my southern accents really ramps up when I get around people like you Um you know, kind of, kind of brings me back. But, um, so we moved away, uh, cause my father was an alcoholic and, um, their relationship had just deteriorated. Like me as a kid at that point, I'd never seen as bad as it got behind closed doors because my parents were very good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, like it wasn't this, train wreck of physical abuse that is clearly like we have got to get out of here. It was more like a slow deterioration of just uh, a relationship, you know what I mean And my mom knew I, I've got to get my kids out of this situation. It's getting to the point where like the the last thing that I saw from my father was him he was in in the in the army is I saw him getting taken away by military police from my house. While I was, I lived right across the street from my elementary school, from my middle school, and I saw him get taken away while I was on recess. And and at that point, I knew, wow, this is, I don't know what's going on, but something is serious going on. And then about a month later, we were gone. You know, so like, you know, I have since talked to my mother uh, about it, you know throughout my adulthood and everything like that before she passed away. But at that moment, like it, it was almost like my world was rocked out of nowhere. Um, yeah. So we go on to, to West Virginia and a whole new life starts basically. Um, and that life is, I'm not going to touch alcohol. I'm not going to touch drugs, anything like I, I, I saw how it affected my mom and how we had to get up and go. And I was very hard from that moment forward that I will not allow any sort of substance to affect my life negatively or to become a problem. So I just cut it off immediately. Never did anything because of that. So that is where that like straight edge comes from. It never came from music or anything like that. That just showed me other people that were like me and had mm-hmm. similar belief systems. So like, you know, like I come from a tiny town. I didn't know anything about hardcore music. I didn't know anything about uh, Gorilla Biscuits or Youth of Today or anything like that. I found a, found out about that stuff when I heard punk and hardcore for the first time. Uh, my first hardcore band that I listened to was Zeo, which was rooted in Christianity because I came from the area that I was in. Um, that was it. But basically, so you have that, no religion that's where the straight edge comes from but also my my ethics come from watching my mom go from living a very regular military based background where you know middle class didn't their money wasn't a concern or anything like that we weren't rich we weren't poor it was just a military based background you know dedicated income or whatever you want to call it and then getting up leaving going out of nowhere my mom did not have a job she was a stay-at-home mom and she had to figure out some sort of career um and so we moved uh to West Virginia we lived with my grandparents for I think about a year while my mom figured out her career um which you know she latched onto something up there and then we moved into a trailer that my mom bought with her own money for the first time in her life and uh you know, I never really considered us poor in any way because we never struggled financially. We she always provided everything, whether it be new school clothes or the money that it costs to to play on the football team, all of that stuff was always taken care of. We always had food on the table, everything like that. We just happened, all she could afford was to live in a trailer. Um and, you know, back at that time period in a small town in West Virginia, it wasn't a big deal. It was pretty common. Um, but I've always used that as a beacon for me to run towards. Like, she never, never talked about being poor or not having enough money or anything like that. She did what she could while she could just due to her own hard work and belief that she should be providing for her kids without mm. complaint, without any help whatsoever. So I think that's where my work ethic comes from. And it's
1: a positive, is a form of positive because you know, that's a, that's a form of positivity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, we were loved. She was a quiet woman, but a very hardworking woman. Sacrificial never had
1: positivity is what's absolutely. That up is,
0: me. yes, that is absolutely what it was. And, for me, I, I chose to see that situation as a situation that she didn't have control over. So she did the best she could. And when I got into what I wanted to do for a living, I used that trailer as where I never want to go back to. And I used that broken marriage as something that I never want to experience for my kids. So those are the two main driving factors for, for what I consider to be my morality
1: there's yeah for sure morality is the is the word you you act as a very moral character <laughs> it's just like yeah. that's my experience with you is jt is a moral force that's yeah. the, that's the distinct feeling
0: and uh it it's it's weird because not a lot of people i haven't run into a lot of people that are like that not that i'm like this totally unique person but most of the time People's morality is driven by religion or driven by right. something, okay. something okay. like that. So um, hey, that
1: helps uh, because you're, it's, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's your, okay, so I had to zero up further into integrity then. It's like you got wired yeah. however you got wired, but you you don't, uh, you're not really flexible on in, in what you know. Like whatever you cut off there when you said, I cut this off or I did that, whenever you're formed, like uh, I say integrity, like a ship has integrity, not like, I'm not putting a value judgment on it, but certain people have this integrity where they can't deviate from their own principles about things. Yeah, so like when you lock those down for yourself, you live them, you know, and so you always have high conviction about what you're saying, and and it's like judgmental when it's judgmental because you know it just all connects to to your own inner sense of something. I think, and then maybe somebody will call that authentic or whatever else too, but it's kind of something tied up in there for you that's high. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, most.
0: for for sure, and like you know, I I guess it's it's really the. The ability to always want to feel seaworthy.
1: Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like, okay. like, yeah, like totally. you, like, yeah not, like without you, a leak, the integrity. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Like, you know, and it, and it spills over sometimes negatively. You know, like sometimes we will accept lower billing on our own festival because that's not important to us, even though in the grand scheme of things, it might dilute your value to somebody else's festival if you're playing below somebody or accept mm-hmm. a lesser guarantee or something. To me, the whole encompassment of the scene and the world mm-hmm. must be taken into consideration, <laughs> not <it> is. just <laughs> yeah, what go. is good for me. Because That's right. you know what? I could make that case for everything in our career. Should we be bigger? Should we be better? Should we be the best? You know what I mean? Like it's I think that everybody should be at the table and like, it's almost like it's a wonderful life, the movie. How much do you need today? I know I can't give you every bit out of the bank, but how much do you need today to carry on your life? Because we all need to. We all need to eat here. That's that's kind of my point of view.
1: Yeah, th- that makes sense. And it takes into consideration the higher levels, not just the your own self or your own band, like the the, the amount of you have an ethic and then you apply it beyond just yourself so you're talking about the landscape or this thing we all live in the soup the tides that a lot of people that that's you know a lot of people in music entertainment feel competitive in a way where they don't even really act as if the tide rises all boats like they don't even they really they might say that or hear somebody say that but they don't they don't actually understand that it is true that you really can just be happy for the thing bigger than yourself without having to worry about yourself as much. Like that is true. If you can see it and some people, you know, can and some people can't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's another great way of putting it. The, The one thing that I've always kind of thought of is, you know, the age old argument is the glass half full or the glass half empty. My argument is, is there anything left in the glass? If there's something left in the glass, you have more than you need. Mm -hmm. And you always have to approach things like that. When that glass gets empty, you can freak out all you want. But if there's something left in the glass, don't worry about it being full. Don't worry about how empty it is. There's still
1: something left in the glass. So you hang on stuff like gratitude then. Yeah, for sure. You you seem to engineer yourself to be in a possession position to then experience or practice whatever however you do it, it is interesting to, to, to it just it's interesting to me that strong values christian music straight edge and then just whatever it is about music okay so now now take me from that d- depth into what is special actually about music because all the stuff you're saying it applies to anything that's not we, you happen to be into music but if you were in some other thing that you thought was cool, the same stuff would be true about that industry or community or sector. Do you know what I mean? The same principles that you have, if you have applied them to music and then been successful, I would claim as a, you know, direct result, but, um, but they're universal kind of, of a, some type of ethical thing that you know, and other people know that work well in the world. But what is special about music? Why music for you then?
0: For me, what what is
1: special about music?
0: For me, like I talked about a little bit earlier, my mom was a kind of a quiet person, and like did not talk about feelings very often. You felt loved, but you weren't necessarily told you were loved, or "I'm proud of you," or uh, you know, like anything like that. Just not very expressive. You, it was the underlying message, but not a outwardly hugging type person or vocal type person. So for me, I think that I've always ran towards things like music because it's a very expressive art form. Mm-hmm. So creatively I've it's always driven me that way. Like I've always I'm always looking at lyrics. I'm always looking at soundscapes and how they move you in some way or another. I'm always drawn towards movies that have some sort of growth element, whether it be stand, stand By Me or the Shawshank Redemption, something that is very much designed to pull emotion out of you.
1: And the I think Emotional that's what, impact is is what this emotional yes. impact is. You So you have the, the one thing is just like the code. But then in life, you are seeking, you, act, you have this way that you are, and then you're seeking the emotional realm. when, And then music is where you find that or something.
0: Yeah, I I think that that's that's pretty fair to say. You know, I think that always searching for a way to project how you're feeling or to take in how somebody else is feeling, because there was a lack of that when when I was growing up. Um, And I I think that that is why uh, the beat doesn't matter to me. But what somebody's saying will always matter to me
1: so the message is still even fundamental the music and then the music is the thing that helps if you can craft it have have get the meaning to land yeah so it's like you're you're tapping it and you, you say the way other people are feeling the empathic the nature of being connected so you think music's about having these messages that project positivity that other people can use and feel connected and then you need you know drums and bass and moods and minor keys and major keys to make that to Im- improve that Im- impact of emotional absolutely uh, transmitting of the thing that you're trying to transmit
0: absolutely that's nice. that's, that's yeah that's that's totally how i feel
1: yes yeah, so that's super yeah like it's like it's very mechanically stated where you know it might just you could say it from a church context or an industry context it would sound different but you're communicating it from something but that's very interesting i agree <laughs> i obviously agree but i just think that there's uh i don't know where what's special about music exactly though because for me it's i think i'm most attracted to just the sound the 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 pure way the sound can hit an emotion without the lyric I think is like my most tuned in zone. And then the lyrics are this whole nother level that it's hard for me to even totally understand. But when that even lines up is even more, but I think I'm mostly just attracted to how sounds work together and can accomplish all that with no words at all, or just the tone of voice, like the body language of the music can do so much on its own. And then you get to drop in like lyrics or meaning or message, but it almost seems weird. Cause I mean, then do you feel like when you had to start writing lyrics, it's too strong, it's too big of a job? If it's like the whole thing's about my lyric message, that seems a little intimidating. That's, I think, what it is. Because now you I think, mean, oh, i am got to have a whole career where I am the one responsible to put out the right messages to people.
0: Definitely. I mean, but, you know, the the ones who are, I guess, called to do that called there you go <laughs> yeah, they e- say, i'm not called to do that i'm, I'm certain of it <clears throat> yeah they either have to catch the pass and run to the end, end zone or drop the pass and scurry back into the shadows and that's how it is there is a lot of i don't want to say pressure because pressure isn't the right word but there is a good amount of of wanting to be a good steward Of what you were doing to like, like, you know, and back in the day when you you first started to catch your little bit of heat, you always had somebody on your team, whether it be your label, your agent or your manager telling you, hey, you guys are too visible. You need to not be at your merch table. You need to be behind the shadows. You need to create mystery. Right. On that first tour that I was on with you guys, when our album finally came out, at the end of it, people started coming up to us at the merch table and saying things like, this song that you wrote, the lyrics are exactly how I feel. And when I listen to it, I feel better. And then you, you go on a couple years later and people are telling you, because of this song, because of the lyrics, I was contemplating suicide and it made me realize that there is plenty of hope left for me i think that you would have to be a psycho to not feel like you should be out there and available to those people who have come to tell you that Mm -hmm. so i've always approached it that way that like I want to be out there talking to these people about what this message is if there is a message or what this lifestyle is all about if somebody wants to know about it or just anything like that. I just think any amount of mystery that I could obtain by just sitting backstage looking at my phone would be totally negated because of what you can gain by emotionally and verbally connecting with somebody who might be struggling or who might have gotten over that struggle.
1: Mm -hmm. And that seems just really oddly common in music, like you think, because a lot of Christian artists, for instance, think or say or or would have that experience. But it's weird to think anybody out there, who's in a band is really impacting people is getting that same story about save my they'll say it saved their life. And you go, well, but I was just, you know, it's just that that's just a weird territory, but you know, and you know, it's not, you didn't do it. You didn't do something, but you were, you're so, you know what I mean? It makes you feel weird because you know, the power of, of music is extremely high in that moment because you're like, well, how is this happening a bunch of times to a bunch of people? And all we were doing or all I'm doing is this, that becomes to be a little awkward.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely can be because you know there's there's all types of spectrums of people expressing their feelings. Some can be pretty visceral, can be pretty in your face, and can can really take you aback. Uh, and then some are very low key, ingenuous, and like yeah, like it's it's a broad world, man. It is a yeah. broad world, and when you open yourself up to receiving that
1: information, the emotional impact. Yeah. It's just like you're, it's absolutely. So then it's like, what is it? And then, yeah, it's a little scary though to look at is all. So that's why some people avoid it. It's like,
0: I I totally get it. I because you are, you're opening yourself up to a lot of different things, whether it be to just not respond the right way to somebody who doesn't understand your personality. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, like, I'm a very sarcastic person and I was obviously never used sarcasm during a time like that, but during a, an easy, like a a lighter time back at the merch table, I might say something that's sarcastic and I'm branded an asshole for the rest of my career to that one person. Mm -hmm. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So like, it, it is you, you open yourself up to, to a lot of different things. But like I said, I feel like the good outweighs the bad by far. and I. But some people,
1: it destroys them though. That that attention, that feeling of power and that whatever that is to be in like that, that really messes with some people that just like it sends them into all kinds of bad places. You know, sometimes
0: you're 100% right. And that is, there are some people that need to, to be behind the curtain at all times, because being, it's an ego stroke to some people in a way that they cannot triangulate it do you know yeah, some people it?
1: ego but some people are self-destructive and they say they start to think they're not worthy and then they're back yeah. uh, to the, their own self they become destructive and some ego you know like what? Well, I mean, anyway it's just it's interesting to identify that um and you because right there at that time it, let's get back into it. thank you for that deep esoteric um Moments of the to open the podcast. Let's get into more of the actually what has happened to you in your career because it's a lot. But that moment right there where you become that was just such one of the biggest explosive moments ever because it's like you're just fifty dollar band that's opening like a baby band. And There was a hundred of those at the time that you never hear from again. Um, and then the next week, as I remember, it, is Taking Back Sunday's second record came out and that was just the biggest promotional thing ever and inside of that CD when it came out in that time you open that CD up and it had your CD on t- in the packaging of se- the release of that and then you go instantly into the victory's heyday or something like that where it's like they were the most possible on top of what they could do for a band and that band happened to be you <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that just like that's how i, I mean i might be exaggerating that um, but that's the way I, like that time period. what seems like it had been their most power to do something for a band, and it was you that they did it for. And yeah, then that creates sure. all kind of paradoxes from from here for how you possibly <laughs> assess the rest of your career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I've been telling that story uh, to a lot of fans recently about how you probably first heard of us as the first track on that free CD you got into taking back Sunday CD because everybody was ready for it. And, uh, you know, a side, a a side joke to that is if you gave somebody one CD right now, they would throw it on the ground. If they gave you two CDs right now, they would probably never talk to you again. Like that's the thirst that we had back in the day. Give Mm -hmm. me as much music as you can give me. I want to hold it. I want it autographed, whatever.
1: Now that, it's how like, many units was that initial thing? Do you know?
0: I have no idea. And I mean, that little... record
1: had to have done 40 or 60,000 first week alone, just like, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I would say 100, that's 100,000. Right? I mean, something like that. And then every one of them was you, you are immediately distributed physically to. That and it's the exact. It's like the one of the craziest, most impactful marketing moves of all time it has to be at the perfect time when all anybody wanted was CDs, and they did want them. Mm-hmm. And you just set another one in there, and it's on point to the exact fans of who's exactly going to like it. One hundred
0: percent, you know, and, and like you said before, sometimes it it could happen to somebody, and then other times maybe it doesn't. So like, it makes you realize that how much of this. Is lightning in the bottle? How much of this is hitting the lottery? Because we all play, right? And how much of this is, if that is the first part of the equation, you know, like the, the A plus B equals C, if that's the A, what does Hawthorne Heights have to do at the B to equal the C? Because on that compilation, there's, you know, 15, 20 other bands as well. But what did we do that connected? And what did we have to do to take that ball and put it in the end zone? Uh-huh. You know, that. so that's really where that secret sauce is. Victory had a lot of incredible ideas of how to market their bands. Namely, us, before that, Taking Back Sunday, before that, Thursday. And uh-huh. then after us, A Day to Remember. Right. And, you know, that, you know, and and that's almost have...
1: like a straight line. If you just look at those, uh, that, like, that's the way you just tell the story of victories uh, rise into its heyday. Say, what was before Thursday? That, Thursday. Would, like, how would you say that? Thursday be... probably
0: would have been maybe hate breed or something like that. You know? But in this there...
1: particular thing, it's like, okay, Thursday, victory, Earth crisis. Taking back sun. Yeah, because they had all that other stuff. But as it started to break into this territory where it was yeah. emo-like trajectory, yeah, and I that think was that... really strong.
0: Yeah, I think that it probably came from like like Snapcase opened a lot of Snapcase. doors because they were kind of they were teetering past hardcore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like you would probably consider them Turnstile now. You know, Turnstile is absolutely an incredible hardcore band, but there are other elements in there that are not just hardcore. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Definitely. So I think it's a that post something. Yeah, maybe you go from like Snapcase to Thursday. Maybe that's yeah. kind of what did it, and Thursday is like the more artsy side of what that can be and the, and created a really visceral reaction with the sing scream thing. Right. Right. Um, And then, you know, taking back Sunday is maybe a little bit more on the singy side than the screamy side. So that makes it a little bit more palatable. And gets, it. that's even bigger still. Yeah. And then we are someplace in between all of that, which is probably the most hilarious, you know what I mean? We have like, breakdowns where we're singing we got breakdowns where we're screaming all because we just like a lot of different styles of music a lot of victory bands and stuff like yeah. that so like we kind of created our our, re- our own you're way.
1: recombinating there yeah. with what was happening it quickly and as the audience was just showing up like it was like if you were making any kind of screaming sounds three years before that every person would tell you they don't like it don't scream. And cert- if anybody did like it, it would be maybe some, uh, you know, teenage aggressive OzFest boys or something. <laughs> but by the by the time this time hits, all of a sudden there are, you know, 14-year-old girls that love screaming breakdowns. Like wh- how, yeah. how did we get he- – how – that wasn't cal- – <laughs> it wasn't on purpose. You didn't see that coming, that these sounds you're making that you think are – aversive to people or something. They don't like these sounds, but you're trying to make these sounds anyway, almost becomes what it became at that same time that you're able to deliver, you know. So just like, just that moment felt very explosive to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that the way that things worked, it, it was like the perfect storm. So you got all the victory stuff and that kind of creates a lane. Um, and then you they know, remember where... right after that. It
1: was like yeah. really right after that too.
0: Yeah, but then you, like in in your scene, in, like, the tooth and nail solid-state scene, there was also a lot of stuff starting to bubble in the Sing, Mm -hmm. Scream area as well. And then Equal Vision had some stuff happening, whether it be, like, the Armor for Sleep Mm -hmm. uh, world. But the mainstream really started to smash it with the used and story of the year. So they started to, like, really make it like... MTV style, right? You know MC- what I mean, like we, yeah,
1: exactly, yeah, yeah.
0: So that that really kind of let us all like boil over, and really, like it. I think it kind of depended on what people thought was catchy about your band. You either had like the sick, heavy, dissonant breakdowny part in addition to the singing, and I would consider you more. In that world, because you have like angular stuff, kind of like a Thursday would, uh, but kind of like the the dual vocal harmonizing singing. So you were in a like in an interesting lane. But then you had screaming with pop punk Mm -hmm. and then you had singing with hardcore. So like, even though it all seems like we were all in one scene, there was a lot of variety happening in there but you had to all
1: put it in one place. Kind of like how we are. Yeah. It's like Mexican food is all the same ingredients. Just how you bundle it up.
0: Exactly. Kind of like how we, (laughs) how we were joking. uh, One of my favorite jokes is that nineties alternative is every single music. Yeah. That wasn't pop and rap and country, but any, anything, I guess we'll call it alternative. So like Mm -hmm. all these bands, really it's not screamo. It's not emo. It's not hardcore. It's not pop punk. It's this ecosphere where everybody is kind of doing, I guess, something similar. So I guess we got to throw them in there. Because if yeah. you think about it, like even the bands that we're really contemporaries with, we don't sound very much like you, even though we kind of do something very similar. But you you it it enters your atmosphere different than it enters ours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Silver Silverstein. Silverstein. You have their influences are like Canadian bands like grade. Do you know what I mean? So that creates a different type of atmosphere. But we are all in the world where we like hardcore music. We like pop punk music. We like rock music. And we like, you know, the first wave of emo, which would be maybe Sunday Day Real Estate and stuff like that. So like, Mm -hmm. that's why it's interesting to see how we all like, we all had to have, boom moments that made us outliers as well. You know what I
1: mean? Exactly. But it's just like, I just feel so good to see it in perspective now and just see that there was these bands trying to do stuff and they did stuff. And then there was another generation that kind of took it to some level and then the labels get involved and then the people filter it and get good and come out and actually run and operate like professionals with careers. Like we're lucky to enter the time when you can have career because the time before us, there wasn't, it wasn't career and then the technology and then it's like enough shared culture where it's like, Oh, this is like Silverstein shows you how to, operate you've people pass on the knowledge and then it's stable and there's these i was talking to derek from May Day parade and they've just put together such a long stable career too because there's a way to do it and they've been able to do it you know from learning from everybody else and having it reach that boil over kind of thing but, but when you guys boiled over though i mean it was it was like big like what if you are hanging your hat and saying it back like where were you in all of and i want to talk about victory basically what in that world what was, what did y'all achieve in Victory Land? That you were, you know, out of all the bands they had, you were what? Like, how was that relationship? And did you see your place? And how many were you selling? I'm trying to remember because it's just so quick for me from that tour to the tour where we're on Nintendo Fusion and there's, you're headlining with three thousand people a night, biggest tour we ever did in theaters, and you're bringing your own bus and productions and PA like is many arenas, and it's like you're that level like that's a whole like the real level of real mainstream bands you're running it and still being in our genre but doing it from over there in a very brief time so how long is that time and what was the really if you have to look back and I force you to name the achievements then what were they
0: yeah definitely um, well I always tell people that like I was working at a gas station in the summer of 2003 our record came out in the summer of 2004. The Silence of black and white, and we were headline. We were one of the headliners of Warped Tour 2005. Mm-hmm. So, right. gas station, Silverstein tour, Warped Tour main stage. That's what happened. And then the following year, headlining theaters, Fallout Boy tour, right arenas. Right. Basically, we went from yeah, there, yeah. gas station to arenas in less than three years. That is not... it. Very few people could have that happen to them. It takes a tremendous amount of hard work, also takes a tremendous amount of luck, and that's why we mentioned lightning in a bottle. But you do have to realize that there are things you could do and could not do to make that happen and escalate things quickly. So you
1: and- hit MTV basically warp, headline warp tour on mtv what else was the um you, what were you selling like how did you ma- ma- mismanage it like how many records did the first record wind up selling in sound scan language
0: sound scan language i think it's at about 1.1 1. 1 or 1. 1.2 million um which is wild to say out loud um but like When we were on that tour with you, that first half of the tour, we had no music out other than one song, Silver Bullet, which was Mm -hmm. our announcement song, which was the demo of Silver Bullet. Uh, That was our Welcome to Victory Records like press release song, was that. And then when you mentioned the Taking Back Sunday song, that was Ohio's for Lovers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that did, that came out maybe a week into tour, because I remember clear as day, we were like... Holy shit! We're not playing "Ohio's for Lovers," and that song is reacting right now. So we mm-hmm. had to go and rehearse on an off day to figure out how to replay "Ohio's for Lovers" and throw it into the set list. And the very first time we ever played it was at Emos in Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. and we had a day before to get it rehearsed and get it all together and everything. And like from that moment on, it's all "Ohio's for Lovers." You That's know what cool. I mean? Like.
1: But yeah, you so, hadn't played it because it was on the record, and you it never it was part of your live set before.
0: Nope, never. Oh, cool. Played so it. I was
1: there the first time you ever played that song.
0: Yes, you, abso- you absolutely, you absolutely were. Day.
1: I remember that uh, day. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we just threw that in there because you know, like the internet, the whatever you want to call it, social media, press, pure volume, uh, smart punk, all of that stuff that was kind of being tastemakers at the time was starting to pick up on that song and we're like okay this is we need to throw that in there cuz it was track 8 on the record we weren't we didn't think anything of it it has the word ohio in the name so we're not like oh the world's going to want this one right you know what i mean so like that was one for us so put it track 8 on the record and it sounded similar enough same chord structure you know you know as a musician how that can mess with your head a little bit it's the same chords as Silver Bullet. We got signed off of Silver Bullet. Everybody had heard it. We knew we were playing that one. So if we're going to play that one, why do we want to play Ohio's for Lovers? It's the same chords.
1: Yeah, makes sense. So
0: so you're thinking like an idiot musician, not thinking like a kid, you know what I mean? Or a music listener. You're thinking, oh, well, everybody knows chordal structures. They're going to see through this. It's going to be the same song. You know what I mean? Like, so... We're just like, let's play a different, fun one. I don't even remember the other one that we played and kicked out, but, um, yeah. So, you just started to feel it grow pretty quickly, and you know we hit that it's on radio even part. then.
1: Like everything was possible at that time, and you had they are just spending money on it, and just yeah, kind of, like whatever, yeah. put money into it after it comes out. Like that doesn't happen anymore. It's like it came out, people like it. Okay, now let's turn on the juice.
0: Yeah, I just remember being so nervous because it was the first time that you ever had to have results. You know what I mean? Like so we play the song and a week later we're in Nashville, Tennessee, album com- the song comes out and it got bumped because something happened with the distributor. So it was supposed to come out June 1st. All the advertising said June 1st. Whoops, it doesn't come out, comes out June 8th. So we're worried about that. And like, we don't have any barometer of what a sale should be or anything like that. So we go to Nashville, Tennessee. We're playing uh, the tour and we go to try and buy our CD. We go to five record stores. Nobody has it. And we're like, great. So people think it comes out June 1st. You can't even buy it when it comes out June 8th. We're screwed. Everybody's going to hate us. The labels not going to think that we're worth anything. We can't sell anything, so you know we're on pins and needles. We're it's nerve wracking for the next week. We get a call when we're at Ace's basement in North Carolina on the mm. same tour. You the remember it, that? Yes, you remember it YouTube. very well. Yeah. They uh, they record uh, your your. I think they record your band live. Yeah. For like yep. twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. and everybody's like, I don't know, man. Can we afford twenty five dollars? Of course, you should pay twenty five dollars to have your damn band professionally recorded. But at the time period, you're like, I don't, I don't it's know. It's a scam. I don't know it... Yeah, yeah. You th- that's exactly <laughs> what you're thinking. So I get the phone call, and I'm like, Oh shit, here it comes. And uh, you know, we're like, Okay. Just tell me what the numbers are. I know why you're calling. Just tell me what the numbers are. And they're like, all right, I'm going to break it to you easy. You are the uh, highest selling victory debut of all time at 2,500 copies. And, uh, you know, we had no basis of what that meant, where it was, how much that even is. But we're like, holy shit, 2,500 people.
1: That's for a debut band.
0: For a debut, debut band. Right, bought right, bought this right. album. That So like to us, we were just elated. Couldn't stop like smiling and um and you know you f- flash forward a, a little bit later and now we're starting to we got the Hellfest offer so we got to play Hellfest in New Jersey something that we'd always just heard about you know every great hardcore band all that stuff we play that we meet we meet the band mess that night uh cuz we're watching them um, uh, That's right our guitar player Casey uh, was he was into anything punk, anything hardcore, anything like that? So he listened to Mess. Always played in the van and stuff. So we, we talked to him. Uh, they watched our set. They've been hearing about us. And uh, Tony from Mess asked me that night on the spot, "We're doing a fall tour. Will you go on it?" And we're like, "Sure." And we're, the whole time we're thinking, "This damn band's on MTV. They're huge. Of course we're going to do that." So we call our agent. We're like, "Hey." I don't know if this will actually pan out, but this band asked us if we wanted to go on tour in the fall. And this was in the summer, by the way. Things happened way quicker back then, where now it's way more long lead and stuff like that. But So we, sure enough, three days later, we get that call. And the whole time we're thinking, we cannot allow our band to just play with other bands that sound like us. So we viewed it as a way to expand our fandom. You know, like MEST is just an MTV style pop punk band. We wanted to capture their fans. We were always really calculated and smart about who we wanted to play for if we weren't headlining. You know, like, let's try some shit. Let's not be like, well, we can't, we don't want to play with MEST. That's all pop punk kids. That's not for us. We're like, well, let's try and show these pop punk kids what a hardcore band does or what a screamo band does. And I just remember doing that tour. It was us, Bayside, Punchline, and a band called Lola Ray. So we knew two of the bands anyway. And we didn't know that they were on the tour. But we're like, holy shit, this is going to be awesome. We play it. First night, Denver, Colorado. We think it's the big time, baby. Finally, we're going to get a rider. We show up. We have a little tiny dressing room and chips and salsa and one case of beer. And we're like, this is the big time. This is what you get. This is awesome. We play uh, our first track off of The Silence in Black and White, a song called Life on Standby. And nobody's thinking anything. Uh, We're looking out and we're seeing. It It just looks like Hot Topic people, mall punks. We're looking out. We go into the, the breakdown of that song. It's really when it kicks in and starts screaming. So we're about a minute and a half into our set. And you see absolute horror and absolute excitement and people's eyes get wide. They'd never seen a band scream before. So this was everybody who would just, they were into Mist, Good Charlotte, Some 41, Blink-182. You know, like all these bands that were like massive pop punk bands, but we were all still on the fringe. Remember, this stuff hadn't really broke yet. So... You know, after we play the set, we we see the people that are in horror. We see the people that are like had just had their minds blown and have been opened to a whole new thing. For all they knew, we were the only band that ever sounded like that in the history (laughs) of the world. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's so, those kind of experiences are the coolest for people when you see them. Like you feel, felt the being polarizing, like what you were doing and, and encountering people for a first. So they were having a first experience on both sides, which is pretty pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. So we go out, and also we go out, and we're hanging out at the merch table. And you're like, Mest ain't doing that. Those bands aren't doing that. They're on they're on MTV." You know what I mean? Their fans are like bringing them gifts of like Jägermeister and stuff like that. We're just trying to have a seat at the show. Um, So we're out there talking. We're signing autographs. We're signing. We're selling our autograph CDs for five dollars. We bought them for five dollars off the label. We're selling them for five dollars just to get our message out there and to get these these uh, people listening to our band as well. And, uh, you know, we were selling 150 to 200 of these a night at the shows. And that was another big catalyst for us. You know, like going into a different music scene and making people understand who we are and what this scene was all about was a big changing of the tides for what was happening then. So pop punk was kind of declining a little bit. And this new heavy st- heavier style of music was kind of raging um <clears throat> so that was definitely a moment in time for us and then i forget we went on tour with somebody else uh i think a little bit of headlining stuff just cuz it was uh starting to pop a little bit and then before warp tour we decided to go out with we wanted to go back to the well so some 41 came calling and that's like even a tear up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from that like massive at the time uh some of our like we all love Sum 41, we still do. You know, like those albums are just incredible. The guitar work, the melodies, everything—just the aesthetic. Everything's pretty, pretty badass about that band. We went on tour with them right before leaving for Warp Tour, uh, 2005, and I just remember that—that that actually showed me what the big time was. It was Hawthorne Heights first, Unwritten Law second, and Sum 41 third. So a three-band bill. No openers, nothing. We were the cold opener. Uh, Unwritten law would be sound checking until doors. We would put our stuff on stage at doors, be line checking while the fans were already in there. And we were getting to be a big band at this point. We were no longer an opener. We were just an opener on this tour. Mm -hmm. Um, So people were like, you know, squealing and screeching. They're right there. They're, They're on the stage already and like you know it's kind of embarrassing for us cuz we want to make an entrance. Um so we go through that tour we're leaving the tour to go to Warp Tour 3 days later. So we go up to some 41 and you know they're they're like a big band. They're uh you don't really see them very very often. They stroll in, they stroll out and not even in a bad way, just when it when you get to that level, you're occupied with a lot of different things uh you know the singer was dating Avril Lavigne at the time so you know like big mega moments happening they're not I don't blame them for not being concerned with Hawthorne Heights or the tour or anything but I just remember we go up to him on that last day and say hey man just want to say thank you very much for taking us on tour and Derek goes hey man I know we've been kind of not around but like we have a lot of stuff going on that we're trying to get together and, uh, you know, I promise we'll hang out more here coming up once we get through. And I'm like, no, like we're leaving the tour right now. We're telling (laughs) you goodbye. Um, and like, that was the first time that I realized, (laughs) Oh, when bands get so big, they, they can't, they can't focus on those things. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They can't like be worth. It's not like all dude, we're all going to bro down because you got to think, Within one year, we went from hanging out with you and Silverstein and Alexis on Fire, all three, like, awesome, chill bands to the big leagues. Mm. And, like, so we just assume, oh, every band's going to meet up in the dressing room and we're all going to, like, share our riders and we're all going to stay at the same hotel. But then you, you fade forward and, like, that band's massive. They're, like, some of them might be flying in for all I know. Uh, but it showed me that that there comes a time where there has to be a little bit of a disconnect. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. from you can't be concerned with those type of things uh, because you're so
1: concerned with everything else. So well, it's not yeah, even a bad thing whatsoever at the once it's because it's like that time when, you know, at first. Well, I don't I don't even know how you maintained really because that next level you got to was so big and so fast and then it's just it's I can't really even get my mind around how you would have fielded or managed the things from the managers, the agents, to the labels and lost control or retained control of the decision making. I don't remember that part and then you know like for the next couple of years there I don't know how you managed that but um what was that part of it for you like learning to trust others and then that kind of stuff yeah i mean nintendo fusion at least
0: like i think the music industry is a healthy dose of who was trying to screw me who was trying to game me you know what i mean like you just have to figure out like who actually has my best interest at heart other than the four of us that are in this room right now you know what i mean like who is trying to push us down roads that is sharing favors who's trying to get a bigger commission out of us by forcing us to headline like if you don't know that stuff like we all just want to hang out you know what i mean like we want to play the best shows that we can so a couple of those things like you know there was definitely times where we had to question things but like The good thing about our music scene is everybody, for the the most part, looks out for each other. If you've played with a band at some point and broed down, you remember that. Always. You know, like, Fall Out Boy, we got that tour because we played with Fall Out Boy at a little tiny comic book shop in Columbus, Ohio, called Midgard Comics. Stayed in touch with them and then played with them on, like, Warped Tour, and we'd seen both of our careers, like, rise and expand quickly. So... They asked us to be on that tour with All American Rejects and from first to last, because that was their opportunity to really show what this scene was all about. And they hooked up whoever they decided to hook up. So like we got that probably based on relationship and us being one of the bands that was kind of climbing really a lot at that time, because that's a big leap of faith, man. That was in a re- those were arena tours that were sold out. That's not like playing the 2,000-cap club. Mm-hmm. That's like 20,000. That's a lot. Um, so we will always be grateful for that because that was like our true time to like to kind of feel like Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, right. Right. And we're that talking means... like that's two years like after you our record in, came out. You're
1: doing music like that just comes from whatever, listening to Zayo and doing stuff or yeah. whatever and just trying to sing and be poppy just like everybody else. And then that is selling out arena you belong in a a sold out arena tour a few years later somehow like that just the fact that the public and you see it now it's just easier for me to put in perspective now because you feel emo at yet another level of like cultural saturation like people would just like school teachers know the term emo about new kids like it's like a cultural identifier like they're yeah like you know it's at a whole nother level of like awareness but this is part of that when it when that emo and hardcore and screaming and breakdowns is like reaching, just it's just a, arena bands or that at that I, time,
0: yeah, it's totally insane to think that to think that like oh, hey guys, if you just hold out here for a second, you'll be in arena next year. So just like ride this on, you know what I mean? Like yeah. nobody ever thought that. We you know like we said, like you mentioned, we were getting fifty dollars to ch- we just wanted a seat at the table, baby. Give me the fifty bucks. Um, so
1: you get, so then you go to, you get to, then you really headline on the Nintendo Fusion tour, and that is at this point you've got the second record out. I mean, I, I, there's just a lot more to, to do and stuff, so I'm not trying to zoom past things, but it's like you get a whole second record, radio campaign, that's big, and that's about the Nintendo Fusion time, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, the first thing that we did was we came calling our friends. When it was our turn to choose mm-hmm. our tour. And by the way, this is all connected because in that first van, we had that Nintendo. So this That's is crazy. like as big as it can be for us. Nintendo Corporation is asking us uh-huh. to help market and Nintendo. release right, the, the Wii. Wii was the Nin- it it was a- it was, it was the we was coming out, yeah. Yes, it was the Wii. So we they got gave to... us
1: all DS's though. I remember yeah. that.
0: Yeah. 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 First day you got a DS. After the tour, we got Wiis. and we got to play them every single day. So you're you're just thinking like, after the Fallout Boy tour in arenas, we're coming back with our own, you know, three thousand cap club tour where we get to play video games all day. There's right. just a fair amount of this that sounds fake.
1: It sounds fake, yeah. Yes.
0: So we're like, hey, who do you want? This has to be good vibes. Call them. Call Emery. All right, they're in. You know, c- <laughs> call uh, uh, Anne Berlin. All right, they're in. Call Plain White Tees. All right, they're in. You know, like we're just collecting all of our favorite bands and people that we've bro down with from day one. And, uh, you know, just trying to put this thing together. And it was just hilarious. And Reliant K. And Reliant K, yeah. Well, yeah. Reliant, remember, Reliant K wasn't supposed to be the band. Reliant K was a replacement band, even though we do love Reliant K.
1: Who was that replacement for?
0: 30 Seconds to Mars. That's so we right. Were, we were about to go on sale with 30 Seconds to Mars. That's right. And And the contract got at an impasse because, and this is all, we're not dealing with this stuff, but we heard... We need to include another X amount of $1,000 for Jared Leto's security guards. And we're like, nah, we're not doing that for the direct support band. You know, so uh, so they dropped out of the tour very late in the game. And um, we were like, who is available? Who do we actually like? Because this is a time that we kind of get to choose. And we love 30 Seconds of Mars. That that would have been a killer tour. Now, it would have been a little bit on the, the darker side, but... Uh, somebody brought up Reliant. It K, would not and, have
1: been as cool. I mean, there have been something cool about it, but that couldn't have. That must. That yeah. would have been a weird dynamic.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah. So somebody brought up Reliant K. We we and we got the deal done really quickly. And you know, the rest is the history as as we all know it. And it was a lot of fun. You know, like we all had a, a pretty incredible time. Yeah. It was our first. I I remember we were supposed to be riding on that tour, uh, for something. And um and I remember we just kept trying to play basketball the entire time. (laughs) Yeah. Because we had our we had our own bus with a riding rig in the back, you know, we're trying to stay ahead and and I'm like, dude, there's a there's a basketball court here. We want to do that. Uh, because you guys were out. It was it was just great. It was funny.
1: Yeah, and so in that time you then you did all the freaking radio and the mtvs and the late shows and just just did everything that people that bands it's like it it reminded me of that time in the 90s when you'd see grunge bands show up in culture and it's like you were seeing people like you showing up on whatever what late shows you do
0: uh we did jimmy kimmel a couple times two or three times we did jay leno and we did conan o'brien uh, and then we did TRL, once. <laughs> nice. So like, yeah. So you're you, at that point, you're really honest to God, you're just trying to keep up. Do you know what I mean? This yeah. stuff happens. All of this happens within the course of about three years.
1: You're right. Like I it, said, that it, window is small.
0: Yeah, the window is extremely small. Of that and, like, particular.
1: Yeah, thing. we we
0: always joke now that like we were showing up to the Conan O'Brien show like not knowing anything other than we're just excited to be there. And like when you when you watch major label bands do it, they have like almost a set built and it's like all themed and it looks wonderful. They're all dressed to the nines. We literally are wearing what we would be wearing on that tour, pulling up in a van and trailer
1: mm-hmm.
0: to Conan O'Brien. From their latest album, If Only You Were Lonely, please welcome Hawthorne Heights. how big the music scene got to where none of us were prepared for it. So our label wasn't like okay, fly them in on the private jet. Um, make sure that you have the, the Silence in Black and White album cover totally recreated so it looks like a set. You know what I mean? Like none of this stuff. Like nobody even thought of it. It was just like, hey, are, are you going to wear the the Emory shirt or the Amberlynn shirt? Because I don't want to wear the same one. You know what I mean? Like we're we're all on uh, these late night TV shows just wearing band t-shirts like like we think it's normal. Everybody else is probably like, I don't know about this music scene, man. They're dressed like clowns. They look like they rolled out of bed and we basically did. Um, but yeah it was a part of capturing that moment and what made it authentic and what made it real and like I think it's a big part of what made it all feel attainable to the kids. The reason that they would connect, kind of like the grunge movement, where like if you just went to a Salvation Army and bought a flannel, you were in.
1: Yeah, yeah. You
0: know, kind you of p- similar.
1: Participate. Yeah, there was. Yeah. yeah,
0: you could participate without like
1: mm-hmm. dressing correct. like a millionaire. Yeah, it's a relatable th- form that comes. It's the same thing that pu- punctures the, um, you know, glam. Like when Nirvana, like, oh, now all you, oh, you got, you don't have to be look like these eighties rockers that have all this are so special. You can just put on a flannel shirt and you're the same as the people that are performing all of a sudden. Like you could, it was reachable and it was relatable fundamentally from being low key like that. That's definitely part of it. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. And that was just, a, that was a, the re one of the reasons that that was such a bulleted, you know, time period for you guys is just because the thing that happens next is, you know Casey dies we lose Casey right here at the was um if you're okay to talk about that is that really just does that feel like that whole thing happens right at the peak of of in in a way
0: uh yeah I mean like one thing that we're losing is we're we're like mired at that point basically in a lawsuit with our label and like a power struggle so like you're losing just a little like almost directly after um we did take or sorry we did nintendo fusion we went on an australian tour and kind of filed the lawsuit right then um and then like that's kind of when that Turmoil streak hits and where yeah you, that's
1: what I was curious about how to get into it because like the ne- next two things that happen are both yeah so it went not- from
0: he- went from heaven to hell almost uh-huh. immediately and like you know some of that stuff you can say is is self inflicted but necessary you know what I mean like if you don't feel you're treated the right way or if you don't feel things are being accounted the right way or you're being pitched the right way you got to if you got to stand up for it at some point or you'll immediately always fall for it, um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And like, you know, we don't really dig into the the litigation and stuff like that because it's boring for fans. And, you know, like it's like you don't want the PTSD of of where that was in the world. And really, that was it was almost about taking all the power to release music into to go positive momentum that's basically what that boiled down to um and you know then right when we could basically start our career again Casey passes away uh just a couple days into the tour and then here comes another like roller coaster so it's almost like we went from the rise period and then the behind the music period Uh You know what I mean? So, like, Uh one minute we're discussing our favorite bands on TRL. The next second we are literally on MTV News having a conversation with real MTV News reporters that we grew up watching. So, like, that is where, like, you start to lose track of time. You know, like even somebody with an incredible memory like me, that PTSD that it gives you that sucks the life out of you, knocks your your space time continuum mm. off track. So, like, you know, we're living the dream in the first half of Back to the Future. We're still climbing. And then Back to the Future Two comes, and we're down into the tangent because we messed up the space time continuum. So we're in the bad version of
1: You're Hawthorne Heights now. You're in the dy- now. Dy- dystopia, right? Ex- like, exactly. A left turn.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something happened, and it was that lawsuit. The lawsuit was our sports almanac.
1: Wow. Okay. Wow. So yeah, like okay. that.
0: That is the thing that, like, because you could naturally start to decline or mm-hmm. plateau one or the other you that's, can naturally yeah, you can naturally do that just based on art trends time you could do that and that will be totally fine but to feel like it's self-inflicted by filing a lawsuit against whether right or wrong that is a momentum killer right mm-hmm. there momentum killer so you know that's uh that is definitely the 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 thing that made it crash back to Earth and made us uh, vulnerable, feel humanized for a moment. Because before that, all we knew was incline. Right. All we knew was our civilization was in its ascent constantly. Mm-hmm. We had never experienced any sort of descent
1: at all. Yeah, everything was all pies were everything was increasing at all times. And then there's the double, you know, big, big mess problems that happen really pretty close to at the same time, basically. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, and I want to talk about both of those still more. I know I don't want to get into the whatever you, I don't know what people don't talk about. Legally, but let's then, if you can, help me understand a little bit of the culture of victory records and what types of things go wrong there. Yeah, the front I just, end. And then we'll do back in, but help me sure. understand the climate that precipitates a lawsuit in that situation.
0: Yeah, I just think that it was a matter of like, it, there wasn't a true respect level when it came to communication. So, like, there would be little things, like, and I don't want to say little, but compared to the things that we had gone through, like a band member passing away, it seems by comparison to be small. Uh, but, like, Victory did not want us to go on tour with Fallout Boy because they didn't think it was going to do any good for our career. They thought, let's do another Victory Records tour. Or something like that that would help the whole family, right? Of bands, but there comes a point where we have to break away from the family and take the tremendous opportunities that we have and run with those as well. And it was just always it was so hardline and contentious that if you said no to something, you're off the radar. Like, and it was always this threat of, okay, we're going to stop promoting you. And like, that's just not a fair way to conduct business when your band is like, you know, we're out there on the road, nonstop, grinding, writing, releasing, everything like that. Doing what we're told for the most part, anytime we would push back on something, it was always a... End of the world situation, right? And it just got to be really, really tiresome. But
1: really that's the way that exhausting. system is. I mean, Tony's a very controversial figure, and I think people understand that pattern. But it fits the p- pattern of any kind of farther into the family, the loyalty, the cult, the mob, the whatever. Yeah, those sh- stereotypes are. It, did that feel right? Like it's like everything's a threat. Everything's nuclear. He owns you. I'm not. Yeah, c- you know, c- kind of. Yeah, so- just.
0: Yeah, it just kind of felt like like no matter what you just could not we couldn't just talk rationally about why we think this should go this way or why we need this or that or the other. It was like if you don't take this band on tour, I'm going to be mad. But the and success like,
1: he had, had though, it makes that hard cuz it's like but he's been right and he's done right and you are here because of him like was that part of it? It's like well, you're only here because of what I did for you. I mean, how does that conversation sure. feel.
0: Yeah, and you know like that's that's really tough to say because you could say, well why isn't every one of your bands as successful as mm. the other? Not just of us, but as the other, or can you really market a blank disc is none of this about the songs that we wrote by ourselves or about the lyrics that people are connecting with or about our personalities as people? So you just really feel diminished And then it gets to a point where like, okay, well, now the lawyers want to start stepping in. And then that point, you're just not equipped. Like we're not business lawyers like we we always joke before. Hey, man, we're we're always just a band who's wanted to play shows. And we've always been happy with that. Like none of us went to business school and said, hey, this band is our corporation. And this is how we're this is our mission statement this is our partnership agreement. And this is how we are all going to run this. Very few people do that that way. So we're all just like, operating on the friendship attitude. And like, eventually, that just kind of comes to a head. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And Mm me, I'm always trying to just move forward and stay rosy about everything. But when, you know, A couple of your guys are like, nah, we want to we want to stop this. We want to, you know, fight for this, that or the other. And then your lawyers saying, yeah, this is an this is an open shut case. This is easy. You know what I mean? Like this will take six months. There's only so much you can fight, scratch and claw and just be like, hey, well, let's just let's just go through this, Um, which is a naive way to look at it. But that's what happened. And that's
1: that's the truth. And so then it got just dragged into, but the momentum was zapped from that. Like the, in yeah, the what that took all the attention, and there was no positive story, nothing to be doing productive, because you couldn't be DIY, you couldn't just go on and do all your stuff DIY at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah, is that you know definitely you're signed to a, re- a recording agreement. You know our argument is it doesn't say it's a, a exclusive recording agreement. There's no long form contract signed. You know, so we're just going to try to continue to do our own thing. But, you know, there's a lot of roadblocks that happen there. And, you know, you are still at this point basically a kid and you don't want to be when when people are threatening you with things like lawsuits and litigation and physical lawsuits like against you yourself, not just your band. Mm-hmm. Like and, and, you know, like now you're wise enough to understand that that is just a, a legal tactic. To make you panic you know like i will sue you as an individual i will sue your band i will sue your family i (laughs) will take your house do you know what i mean like yeah yeah all those things like you know a month ago we're just playing these shows dude you know what i mean like so like you're just not equipped for that and like you know there's a time where it was just it's you just felt like there's nothing you could do you can't It's not worth recording, it's not worth writing, it's not worth playing shows, uh, like that whole situation. Um, But, you know, we consider it one black cloud over many black clouds that are also sprinkled with a hell of a lot of sunshine too, Mm -hmm. you know? So, like, yeah, it's just, it, it made you realize, oh, wait a minute, I like writing songs, I don't like spending time in the court of law or dealing with the less you got to talk to your attorney,
1: the better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Gosh. Yeah. And then that, that whole thing is just infinity of stuff to argue about and talk about in legal and how the contracts work, whatever, but that the victory culture, obviously there's the good and the bad of it being so turbocharged or so aggressive or whatever that is that they, you know, he's clearly over the boundary of what, you know, other people were doing both ethically and unethically kind of um of doing stuff so it's really interesting that you and tony victory in the arc of things directly have conflict you know what i mean yeah yeah for sure an interesting just nugget is a person like jt attracts to into the orbit of somebody like tony victory and you know of course, everybody should have seen that a conflict of is inevitable in that right Like as yeah. you look back at it, it's like well that, that if that you know it's just so obvious that that conflict would would exist. So I know it's more than could even be talked about, but this I find that fascinating.
0: Yeah for sure. And like now like like I said, you have you have the gift of levity. you understand like what what you lose by doing something like that. It's not worth what you might gain either financially or control-wise. So sometimes it's like you're fighting a losing battle or you're fighting against yourself or
1: fighting things that, that don't matter. And but then that other times like you could have done it different because you, no, you couldn't have really. stayed in that. he wouldn't have let you out of that system and you couldn't have stayed in that system. Yeah, like, so, so whatever the, the cost was, you had to pay it.
0: Sometimes you got to pay it, and sometimes you have to stand firm on what you believe if you feel like you're being unt- treated unfairly. And sometimes you're going to lose, but you're going to be right. Yeah. That's just how it is. That's is, that's always how it is. And I, I, the only bit of negativity that I will say is usually the person who has the m- most money can win a lawsuit because of the way our system is set up because they can drag it on and drag it on Until you don't have any money left and you can't fight anymore, Mm -hmm. whether that be appeals or uh, extensions, stuff like that, because you're paying your lawyer. They don't care anything else. You know what I mean? Like you got it. Like if you want to keep fighting, you got to keep paying. So like there does come a point where you just got to be like, you know what? We got to get back to what we actually want to do. And that's being in this band.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's in the midst of that that you lose a best friend and member and somebody as cool as Casey, who's, you know, I mean, he's one of the coolest people ever and just was one of the coolest people ever. Um, So it's just, it's been so long since then, but it's still so um, reachable to me, Casey's loss. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, and you know, like not only was he like an integral writer of our our sound, he was such an avid listener of this style of music like he would know every single band he had the thirst for it like i could never have you know what i mean like he like every every friday he would be checking the the smart punk top 10 to see if anybody had elevated in there some of that he hadn't heard of you know because this is all well before streaming and well before music discovery was at an all-time high. Like, he would be the one to be taking chances on all that stuff. I remember him bringing in Seuss and yeah. translating the name. I'm like, who the hell is this band? He's like, dude, you got to hear them. They're number two on, on the smart punk top ten. Trust me, they're going to blow up. And I'm like, that's how you found that band? Or, like, digging around on Pure Volume for, yeah. like, all this stuff. Like, he was just such a, like, a, a positive lover of music like a fan a total fan of this music scene you know like him bringing in the armor for sleep album for the first time or like he was definitely the one who turned us on to your album you know like you have got to hear this this they're screaming and singing too kinda you know what i mean like just stuff like that and it's like his positivity in that realm of just like dude let's fucking do this let's go let's you know like always just a a ray of sunshine in in that regard always just bring a smile to your face no matter what
1: and he is he was a real contributor to the dna of the band that's still here like the he has a lot of the dna like he has his personality is part of the organism that you guys are still yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, I don't know all exactly what his musical or business contributions are, but they just the vocals and guitar, the pers- the personality as it intersects. Like he was your guy that intersected with the most people beyond the stage. Like he was the person that was most would connect to people that weren't on your tour bus. Basically. Yes, absolutely. He was and it's like just so much of what your band is, I mean, he's just in the fabric of it.
0: Yeah. He was like having a kid in the band. Yeah. Like the, like if, if you got a fan to join the band, that's who it, he, who he is. No, no want or love for the business aspect of any of this stuff. Uh-huh. Let me
1: write songs and sh- play shows. That's all I want to hang do. out with all the people in all the places and all Ex- the, just exactly. yeah, do, all, do all of it. Yeah. yeah so.
0: He's a total, like a good vibe guy, you know, just like a guy you want in the room because he's funny because he's always just joking around and like being in love with Beetlejuice and Harry Potter. And like, that's about as deep as it got, you know what I mean? Like, like that sort of thing. Um, just always elevating the room, uh, hating anytime we would have to get serious. Meaning Casey, you cannot wear the Anne Berlin shirt on late night tv you know and then he and aaron would be arguing like i want either full tuxedos or like you know it's this crazy outfit and casey's like nah man i'm gonna wear this to write love on our arms hoodie and i'm gonna wear a pair of nike dunks and you're gonna shut up you know what i mean like i'm not gonna i, I can't take this more seriously just because you think that we should look like you too Do you know what I mean? Like that. So he was really that like grounding element. You know how some bands try to platform up and be just known as a rock band and like try to dress in designer clothing at a screamo show. Casey was the grounding element that was like, absolutely not. We come as we are. This is how we're going to look. Um, And, you know, like the only way that we wore all white tuxedos is because we considered it to be ironic. So like, oh, you want us to wear all black suits? What's fun about that? Everybody does that. What if we wear all white suits and then it's at least ridiculous looking and we're switching the genre, uh, flipping it over on its side? So, yeah. So, like, I just remember this. The behind the scene calls that no fans would ever know about or anything like that. He was always the grounding element, always that middle of the road guy being like, you know what? That is way too far, man. I didn't, I didn't want to be in this band. If it's going to be like that, that's not who we are. That's not what we're trying to do. Um, he would always be that guy, voice of reason type guy. Okay. We're, we're falling off track here. We don't want to do that, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah. And I'll always remember that honesty. He would always speak up in the room if it was, if something he thought was stupid was happening. Otherwise pretty happy go lucky passive guy when it comes to that stuff. Like, I don't want to know about the business. I don't really want to deal with that sort of thing. Um, but I don't want to do anything stupid here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's such a tragedy, and so uh, also surreal, like you said before, with the like it seems like this in a weird alternate universe that you could things could get this big or blow up or that could happen in two years, and then these bad things can happen. I just can't imagine how you were at all. You know, I you know you see it's it's, it's it's surreal because it's like part of the rock star histories like a member dies on a tour bus of substance but that's so not what it is but it's like in like you know we've just seen the foo fighters lose a member and then do the thing and it's like you're one of you're a band that's been through something like that and it's public but what like that is such on a that's such a narrow set of experience for people like you to like of all the things that happen to bands like well there's no roadmap for this but then that that's even farther off the map.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, it's like uh, like we broke through the stratosphere as quickly as we were able to f- crash back to Earth. You know what I mean? Our story arc, and that's why making it as long as we have and pivoting and, and moving and shaking as long as we have is so impressive to me it's because of these true highs and lows you know what i mean this isn't like this isn't this ship that just kind of like watched a couple things happen and a couple things not happen this is like platinum records and the death of band members and lawsuits and true real life moments that shake you to your core and excite you to the all ends of the world at the same time
1: was the press and the media of stuff around, when Casey died was that hard like what happened with that like was there a narrative like how I don't I mean you know I just again I just really it just puts me back in the place that we you were in DC and we were in Philadelphia I just remember I mean it was a it was a crazy day and getting the call and we got to together with some people that knew Casey that day and you just were not that far away down the road, but that day just really sticks out to me. But I don't know what you really went through. Like you, after that, like how you processed it, you know, I still am not really caught up on exactly what that was and how you interfaced it professionally and personally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Like I think the hardest thing for us was watching the worst in people because they wanted it to be scandalous Uh so like yes the news and the press they are angling for something that is a story and that story is not had a drug interaction with a wisdom tooth being taken out with an antidepressant do you know what i mean like that is not a story the story is uh drugs and lawsuits that's what they need the story to be so like seeing that like even to see somebody think that for a moment because you know like headlines are exactly what people see and seeing that is like it's just it can just it it can be heartbreaking and it can demoralize you but like that's still that's a blip in time do you know what i mean like we we knew all along and we we had to ride the highs and lows not the headlines so
1: did you what did you what did the band decide how quickly about how you were going to handle or react or go away or break up or must go on, like how early and what was the process of actually the rest of the band deciding the actual plan to move forward or not. And and what that would, how did that come to, how do you regroup in that?
0: that Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, we had like a lot of conversations. We never had a conversation was about how this was over. Like that never happened. It was more about when would you like to move forward? When is everybody ready to talk about this? Never like, we're not doing this anymore. We can't do it without Casey. It wouldn't be right. It was more, it was always, this is something that we have fought our entire lives to do. And this is something that we fought in a court of law to do. And this is something that Casey disliked the most was how litigious and contentious it had become behind the scenes of a record label. We cannot let this be the thing that makes it all go away. So like, you know, there was definitely times where we would get together. I don't want to say early on a couple weeks later or something like that. And, um, you know, like, We just weren't ready to play, to perform or to talk like, how are we going to do this without him? Do you know what I mean? Like, how are we going to like we're at that point? We were a three guitar player band. How are we going to. Take this and make it a two guitar player band because we're not replacing him with somebody. How are we going to be able to do that? And this is all well before the technological advancements of today and like back then it was still way more punk than everything is you know what i mean like now you just put everything on a track and it's like totally it's not frowned upon or anything it's like oh they have more guitar parts on a track cool do you know what i mean like but back then it was like dude did you see so and so was using dummy calves at warp tour do you know what i mean like So it's just a different, a different world, but like, you know, it took us a while to, to start to, to dive deep. And, you know, uh, I think it brought up a a lot of feelings between us and the label and we just settled. And then, you know, the rest is history. The rest is okay. This is what's going to happen moving forward. And we're ready to move forward, not stand still and not move backwards. Um, So that, that's, that's basically how, how that chapter of the, of our universe ended and how we, we are where we are now is because we experienced all those highs and all those lows. So now we've leveled out. Now it's like, you know, to not push as hard as you can against things that don't matter. And that's where I say that it has allowed us levity.
1: So you had to you had to move forward. It just was no question that you would move forward, and you know, it, it, like the the obviously all wind out of a sail, all momentum gone, and you avoid negativity there. Still, yeah. you know, yeah. like the you, avo- you still get at least back to neutral with momentum, and then had to start again. And not to mention that the genre now has passed some peak at some of some thing anyway. Yeah, for like sure. That. I mean,
0: you you're always going to you're always going to experience moments of frustration. That's just how it's going to be, but it shows you frustration is easy. The death of a band member is your world crashing down. We are not in that moment. Do you know what I mean? We've we've got we're we've gotten past that. And we don't have to do that again. So like, that's really what it boils down to. You you take all those extreme highs and all those extreme lows. And then you really, like I say, you try to live your life at 70%. If we can stay at 70%, it means that we're not failing. It. If you try to live your life at 100%, 99 sucks. Do you know what I mean? So if you stay above average and winning more than you're losing long-term and consistent,
1: long-term yeah. and consistent. Uh-huh. That's what found it is. Interest of that. And so that then, okay. So then the next chapter is very long and slow <laughs> and it's, you continually taking more and more DIY ownership, wisdom, experience, folding it back in, running your shop, running your business, one foot in front of the forward even though it's still not the easiest time. So there's no immediate explosion of that. Like, it's not another thing like that one thing <laughs> where it exploded, but there's a lot bit that builds and builds over a long time, um, which is its own whole other kind of, of way of being that has given you this, like you said, the, the top of the, the long-term career, the new stuff. that And that process is, it's get becoming more DIY. I mean, what is the trends there that, that set the guardrails for what you've been doing since yeah i
0: I think it's more knowing what you're really good at knowing what you hate and knowing what you need help with and i think that that is what being in a lawsuit is i think that is what various agent and management changes and peaks and valleys is is knowing hey i'm actually really good at doing this in my band but I'm. I don't either have. I don't have any interest in doing that, or I'm just not very good at it. So, not trying to do every single thing you can for yourself, but trying to do as much as you can for your business and your livelihood and your career. That's what we figured out. You so know, the so North
1: Stars go career like it, and how do you index that? Like you're not chasing necessarily record sales. Is it stable income? Stable and
0: in, stable income stable shows, stable attendance, and writing music that you think at least is on par with anything else you've ever done while trying to maintain your sonic goals at the same time. That's really all you can do. So like when you become a career musician, when you jump off into that platform of it all, you have got to earn a living doing it. So you have to figure out what your secret sauce is in your business, no matter what it is. You know, you're, you, you guys in Emory do something that's almost the polar opposite of what we do that works very well for what you're doing and how you need to do it, given your uh, other obligations outside of just having to hustle and grind for 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, if you look at Silverstein, Silverstein's kind of the opposite of how we're doing it too and the opposite of how you're doing it, yes, it totally they're a they're a full-time uh touring band that is servicing their fans and and selling out shows and like they've become a really great live band with a great show um it's just a different it's built on the live performance so like a lot of different things um but it's great to see everybody finding something that works for them. 20 years later, and it shows you that the personalities are one of the drivers, the talent is one of the drivers, and being goal-oriented, highly focused, and having just a little bit of manicness in there that makes you have to live and die by it, and and uh, want, like, strive for success in some aspect every day
1: yeah the manic is in something's you can't be all low and slow you have to have that really aggressive nervous energy yes thing or go after something crazy or big or take huge like you still have to be able to, on top of that be a risk taker basically
0: yes because on paper being an emo band is not a career
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if it's, if you just think, yeah, that's right. You have to definitely be taking some absurd risks at just to keep, or you're not going to have anything to build the, the homeostatic balance upon. If you can't occasionally reach out there and swing at some new opportunity or whatever, what, you know, how, as specialist technology and the trends change and all of that. And so, um, you know, you guys have really been able to really, I mean, even just for Matt Cutshaw and the resurgence of emo and that whole thing, the way that you guys, as people reflect on the genre and the genre going to the next level in culture, you know, you, it's like have, are going to continually rise in that who's left, who stayed around, who's doing good stuff, who had something real, that filter is kind of sifted and it's like. There's a slight effect, and I don't know if I'm crazy, but it feels like the people that survived the longest and are around are better. <laughs> like they're better people. That like the good, the people that did things the most right have have a, a lot a better chance of being around later. So all the bands that are still there and stable that can do all the opportunities that are there now, it just feels easier and better, you know, to me. And I think you you are one of the cases of that. As the genre keeps poking to new levels, you'll have your stuff you're doing in it and attached to it and influencing it. Cause I, I mean right now you're a pretty big influence in the whole thing. Like you hold a place of influence with the festival with this for lovers and just being the Ohio is for lovers guy. Like just those two things alone put you in something. <laughs> yeah. It's,
0: it's totally funny, but like having a lane is as equally as important as being talented or being at the right place in the right time, knowing how to quantify what you're good at and what your moment and your lane is, is probably the most important thing in not running away from your lane. You know, I, I know you remember that from 2008 to 2015, if you classified yourself as an emo band, you were a total loser again.
1: Uh-huh.
0: You know what I mean? If you weren't trying to like, enter sound design into your songs, if you weren't trying to throw a synthesizer or bright colors into your music, you were totally out of step. We, uh, for the lack of a better term, most of the people that have lasted this long never fell for any of that stuff. We continued to be who we were. We stayed the course. We got through some storms out in the middle of the ocean, and we sailed on to smoother seas.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it, it's with, it's like, a, it's not too serious. Like you don't mind that in some ways, emo still is bigger than ever and almost can get made fun of more than ever in a way. But that's okay. Like the levity of it is like you've somehow survived the not taking yourself too seriously part of it too. That I think that's a real key to it that um, I think I'm excited about that because it's like, I don't know, there's something relieving about that part, that element of it where it can also survive so long that it can make fun of it. You don't have to be that serious all the time. And then it yeah. can have even more, you know, maybe reach from that.
0: Absolutely. The way I look at it is even Brad Pitt has made fun of some of his hairstyles. Right. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, like, there's everybody's had different eras that they're more proud of, less proud of, but having that levity. To not let any of that stuff be anything more than a positive part of your sense of humor, I think that's wild. I think if you can't laugh at things that you that you've done, it's not growth. You haven't because, grown yeah, at all.
1: Yeah, because it's and some people just never can, or some of us like to make fun of ourselves anyway. But you you had to juxtapose it with where we were earlier of saying this song, uh, you know, save my life. And also this song is just some dumb emo cliche to call in some also the same exact thing that you made. I'm not saying that's negative or bad, I'm just saying it's like it can be all of those. And it's a song you wrote and it's an uh, intellectual property. And it's something that it's like it's so weird how if you create something that has reach or sticking power or means something to other people, how many different things that can be, like yeah. uh, how many different interfaces with culture and individuals it can have across time that's just you know that's mind-blowing stuff
0: yeah absolutely and i think that's kind of the whole gig i think the whole gig is just understanding that like it's okay to be in one phase out another phase and then also to just be anywhere taken seriously for a moment in time i think that's the the way you got to look at it like oh, this this is cool. Anything that you've done, you want to look back on reverence and to be proud of,
1: even if it's something that's silly, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you, uh, you know, very uniquely, like you mentioned earlier, you guys have Is For Lovers Festival and place, the thing that I love so much about it is that, like you said, you place yourself in the middle of the lineup. That key insight right there is just one of my favorite things I've ever heard is t- to take the power into organizing and setting the tone in a culture of a festival to fill an obvious need and niche of that's out there that people really want to have and feel and to put yourself in the middle instead of like the headliner is like you know it's it's to not it's to not center yourself even though technically you're in the center of the lineup that brings more to the whole thing and sets the culture of these festivals and stuff like that um so That, to me, is huge and all the stuff that goes into it. But I'm curious, really, then, from here, if you really feel like where this whole culture and scene goes and how much bigger can all this get, and where do you see that going?
0: Yeah, I I think that's the, the $100 billion question is, can we all keep everybody's interest in all these bands as true historians and as true good stewards of the genre of just showing people that this doesn't always have to be serious and that you can look back on the early part of your life and the music you used to listen to with your friends going to school or in the summer can be a part of your life always. And you can look back out on it fondly, no matter what your circumstances were. So that's why we, you know, kind of created these festivals. We're trying to continually show people how to have fun in the summertime, not unlike somebody like uh, the Grateful Dead would do or Jimmy Buffett or just all these like, oh, I go to like one summertime show a year at the amphitheater and it reminds me of what it was like to be young and what it's still like to be alive you know what i mean like it's that's kind of our our vibe is to keep the day easy for the fan and for the bands to not have a lot of obligations to give people things to do to tell them who plays when when they play uh And to give people some stuff to do when maybe a band that they either don't like or aren't familiar with are are playing, you know, like like that's where like the dunk tank thing came about. That we're going to work on together and like my space, your face showing you, hey, I don't wear makeup like this anymore, but maybe today I'll have somebody put makeup on my face. Yeah, I can take pictures for Instagram and I can remember what it was like to be young And I can remember what it was like to be going through that phase in my life. And I've made it out, and this is all extremely positive. So, you know, that's kind of the The whole
1: festival just has the the culture to it and doing stuff like that. And tell them what the dunk-a-punk is. That's a perfect example.
0: Yeah, so, like, this is basically, like... I remember going to, like, the volunteer fireman's carnival back in the day. And, like, you just have, you know the high school baseball pitcher guy trying to throw the ball as hard as he can and dunk some wise guy yelling at him. I thought it would be cool to do a little carnival game and have the bands chip in, spend a little bit of time. And then we all like donate it to whoever and whatever is happening out there. You know, like I don't like to, some charities will be local. Some will be um, national. Some will be, major things some will be minor things you know like it's the fact that we all have control over it and have ownership on it is is what's most important to me but like you know like we just want to have a bunch of us kind of punk rock emo guys get balls thrown and then us fall in the tank and there's just no way to not have fun doing that and you know like Obviously, you're not going to get every band to do this. Some people, like I said, they like to stay behind the scenes and everything like that. But like all of us like loud mouth, goofy guys, we need a little seat at the table, too. So I need to hear Toby yelling at the crowd or making fun of you. I need to see Devin throwing off that T-ball arm that he's accumulated over the years. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe you can dunk. ride Now, hour. Uh, you know, crack and wise, you can knock him into the tank and, and, you know, maybe I'll just be there wearing all checkered board and I'll just look like a goof, you know? So it's just, it's all about root being rooted in fun and the silly factor of it. That's, right. that's so kind of how that, we vibe.
1: So it will be Hawthorne Heights and Emory land sponsored the dunk of punk of just one of the things at, at Is for lovers festival this year. So I'll be, yes. in the tank. I love it.
0: Yeah. So two kindred spirits that started off each other's origin story in 2004 in the summer are going to team up and hang out in a damn dunk tank Mm -hmm. 20 years later. Is there anything better than that? Is there anything that you could have thought of happening other than that?
1: No, I mean, the thing that is awesome is just this to me is just the, like there's some rules to what we do, but at the uh, same time there's no rules and that, that, of making up your own rules or following your own motivation and staying able to do what you want to do. I mean, it's not really, I mean, there's a lot of constraints. I had to do a bunch of stuff and it's not total freedom, but I do really think that nobody was thinking you really could put together a whole career and have one. Like that. the fact that that is even possibly possible or has happened at all, that still feels like I'm uh, ahead of something. Yeah, like, absolutely. You know I mean? Like it's just I'm still not yet forced to not do that is the way. So I, I feel a freedom about it all. So the fact that it's all tied into an ecosystem I think is positive and that other people understand the same positive values and you get to keep doing it. And the fact that you could possibly say career legitimately and mean it means I didn't have to. It, it, it feels like it proves something to somebody who told me I couldn't something or I better do something else. It does – it feels that I've succeeded in that thus far. So, but it's only as good as the total amount of people there are for it. You know what I mean? That's like it's it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed to go any farther. I feel that this could be a peak moment again, and then not not nothing bigger. But maybe growth is still possible for everything from here. Do you have a sense on that? Is this just a new peak that's going to end?
0: That's I mean that's that's a, definitely a, a great question. Definitely a great possibility. And you know what? The only thing that we can say is we're going to continue to ride the rocket. Sometimes (laughs) that, sometimes that rocket is going to crash back to earth. Sometimes it's going to soar into the stratosphere. And most important for us is we would rather do it with our friends Mm -hmm. because we think that this music scene is, is stronger when we're all together and stronger when we're all being more collaborative than competing with each other every summer for tours and stuff like that. So like, if we can all be together and invite all of our shared fans to one location to eat hot dogs, dunk us in a dunk tank, and watch a world class show from every single band on the on the bill, I just think that that's pretty special, and I don't want to let it die at any cost.
1: Yeah, yeah, and these lineups are insane. I mean, they're all different ones with different stuff, but from Seosan to Thrice to. I mean, Jimmy world. And I mean, it's just that it's, it's so crazy that that such a thing exists and it's all still, it's here, it's all here. And it's just, you know, it's like small world and big stuff at the same time. I mean, it's cool. It's just, it's exciting. Yeah. So thank you for being the, what, you know, the things that you've contributed that are part of the thing permanently. You know, I think many people hopefully appreciate that. I know they appreciate your music or whatever, but the next layer of influence of how people treat each other and how to things are operate you know being part of that substructure is a i think a rewarding thing
0: yeah well thank you very much man and i've had a had an awesome time having this conversation and i can't can't wait to see you in a couple days and all summer long
1: yep see you soon jt awesome have a good one brother With one eye open, so